This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 335th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new sauropod from the New Ken province in Patagonia and a dinosaur of the day from the New Ken province of Patagonia. Mm-hmm. Just worked out that way. <laughs> yeah. And the, the dinosaur of the day is Line Kupal, or maybe Line Kupal. Not sure where the emphasis goes, but... Either way, we've got a pair of sauropods to talk about. So you know it's going to be a good episode. Yeah. It will be a good episode. I don't know if it's just because there are sauropods in it, but yes. It helps. (laughs) And then before we get into that, of course, we'd like to thank some of our patrons. And this week we have a new patron to thank, and that's Sarasaurus Rex. So thank you very much for joining. And then rounding out our... Thank yous and our shout outs are Argentrinosaurus, the Georges family, Ben at Jurassic Site B, Jared Copeland, Dino Mo, Scotty, John Heck, Ewan, and Tarkia Tamer. We say this often, but we definitely could not create the podcast without the support of our patrons. So thank you all very much for all of your support. And if you'd like to join this group of amazing people, and all of our other patrons, then head over to patreon.com slash I know dino and you'll get access to our discord server and tons of other stuff. And then there are different tiers where you can get ad free episodes and other bonus rewards like books and all sorts of good stuff. Jumping into the news, we're going to start with our brand new sauropod from Patagonia because that seems to be where they're all from these days. So a titanosaur. Yes. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) They're not always titanosaurs when they're from Patagonia. There are other types of sauropods there as well. That's true. We'll talk about that later. But this one in particular was published in Ameganiana and written by Pablo Gaina and others. And yeah, this is, I think, the third week in a row that we're talking about new dinosaurs from the New Ken province in Argentina. It's a hotbed. We could just rename this show I Know New Ken at this point, I feel like. Uh, The new dinosaurs, they pop up everywhere. (laughs) They do, but it's been like a really strong Patagonia focus lately. So this new titanosaur is from the Bajada, Colorado formation, which is about 140 to 134 million years ago. It's a different formation than we were talking about last week. This one's significantly older. The Cretaceous only started 145 million years ago, so this is potentially within 5 million years of that, so it's very early Cretaceous. We're usually not talking about stuff from that early in the Cretaceous. I feel like usually early Cretaceous, we're talking like 100 to 110 million years, I would say, Mm. which is like Apti and Albion sort of words come up a lot. This is way before that. It was already fossilized by the time those dinosaurs were walking around. (laughs) That's so weird to think about. It is, yeah. That like sauropods were probably stepping on other sauropod fossils. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy. So this new dinosaur is named Ninja Titan Zapatai. And Ninja Titan is as cool as it sounds. It's named after friend of the authors Sebastian Apesteguia, who is nicknamed El Ninja. Oh, that's a fun nickname. It is. So I, I'm not sure exactly why that's his nickname, <laughs> but it does. It just translates to the ninja. It's funny. He has a, a page on the Spanish Wikipedia and it just says he's known as the ninja. 
<laughs> Moving on. That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It's an awesome nickname. And it's really fun that it made it into the name of a dinosaur, Ninja mm-hmm. Titan. It's great. They chose to name it after him because he, quote, led the first investigations in the Bajada, Colorado formation from 2010 to 2014. Maybe he needed ninja skills to do that. Yes, maybe. Or he's like ninja-like in his ability to detect all sorts of things around him, Mm -hmm. like fossils. Yeah. But since then, he has supported other researchers working in the area as well. So he's not just like hoarding this collection for himself. He's being very collaborative, like with these authors. So they're appreciative. And now it's Ninja Titan. (laughs) (laughs) And then obviously Titan is after the Titanosaur portion of it. And then Zapataai is also after another Argentinian, specifically after Mr. Rogelio Mupi, in air quotes, Zapata. I guess they didn't want to name it Mupiai, <laughs> mm. using his nickname. Instead, they chose to use his actual last name. But Mr. Zapata is a technician at the Museo Municipal Ernesto Bachman and has been since that museum was founded. Cool. And the authors also emphasize that the species is meant to recognize the other technicians at that museum as well, but you have to pick one. Mm -hmm. You can't name it after everybody, unless you name it after the museum, which does sometimes happen. Maybe that means if they find more dinosaurs, they'll go through the names of the people. Yeah, it could be. I wouldn't be surprised if this museum became the name of a dinosaur at some point or other as well. But Ninja Titan, specifically, was discovered originally in 2014, which makes me think that maybe El Ninja was involved with that because they said he was working there from 2010 to 2014. Mm. So it overlaps at the end of his reign <laughs> of ninjaing around the place. And all of the bones that they found were within a six meter square or 60 foot square quarry. Wow. It was a pretty small place. And it gives you an idea that this isn't an entire titanosaur. This is a partial find, not the whole animal, unfortunately. There have been other sauropods found in the Bajada, Colorado formation. It was found just, quote, four meters below the bone bed where other sauropods and theropod specimens were previously collected, end quote. But I'm not, I don't think they're talking about literally four meters below, like directly next to it. I think it may be four meters stratigraphically mm-hmm. and then like sort of within the formation. But I'm not certain about that. One of those, though, was Bajadasaurus which is one of my personal favorites, obviously named after the Bajada, Colorado formation. But that's that one with those huge neck spines. Oh, it's yeah. The one is a close relative of a Margosaurus. It's Dicreosaurid. And it, it just has like these crazy huge neck spines. They even curl up and forward on the neck. It just looks so awesome. And that one is found in the same formation. There's also been a Diplodocid found in the same formation too. So now we've got a Titanosaur and a... <laughs> a dicreosaurid and a diplodocid all around at the same time in this roughly 140 million year ago time in Patagonia. There you go. Not all titanosaurs, but that's a lot of sauropods. And it's a lot of variety too. Like those are pretty different. You know, the diplodocids with those really long tails, Mm -hmm. then the crazy neck spines on this one, and then titanosaurs, which got really big and bulky later on. So it's pretty amazing. And it's sort of negates some of the earlier thinking that titanosaurs replaced things like diplodocids and other sauropods later and it might have been like a stark shift Mm -hmm. because this is showing those titanosaurs really early on and it seemed to be more of a gradual change in the fauna over time Mm -hmm. not like a massive die-off big extinction something else pops up right there is overlap yeah but for like tens of millions of years so back to ninja titan because ninja titan is also very cool The holotype includes a few incomplete vertebrae from the back and tail, a complete left scapula, which is really the only complete bone that they found fossilized, and then a femur fragment and a mostly complete fibula. So we got a couple of partial limb bones, a few mostly complete vertebrae, and the fully complete scapula. Mm Mm-hmm which is not that bad in terms of sauropods. Sometimes sauropods are named just on a few vertebrae alone. Mm -hmm. Like we were just talking about one that was just a neck. This one's enough to tell you it's a titanosaur. Yes. 
Yeah, but it it isn't like the most concrete titanosaur evidence you could possibly have. But I, I think you're right. I think it is pretty firmly in Titanosauria. I'm not expecting it to change anytime soon. So the scapula is probably the best bone to talk about because it's the most complete bone and it's in the best shape. It's about 110 centimeters or three foot eight inches long, which is pretty close in size to one Apatosaurus individual that I found that was about 118 centimeters long. That one's BYU681. That's not the holotype. That's just some Apatosaurus somewhere. One specimen. (laughs) Yeah. But that might not be that relevant because scapula can change shape. Some of them are really long and skinny, and some of them almost look like an upper arm bone where they're like pretty thick and, you know, they just look almost like a humerus in some ways. This one's pretty blade-like. It's sort of a typical, they call it a D shape like you get with a lot of titanosaurs. And because of that, there's sort of a long skinny blade and then there's a big bulb, bulbous end on the other side, which is about two feet wide on that broad end or 60 centimeters. Hmm. They describe it as similar in general shape to Camarasaurus, which is not a titanosaur, but if it had every feature that was exactly like other titanosaurs, it wouldn't get a new name. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that it has some differences from titanosaurs. As far as Camarasaurus goes, one individual scapula that I found was about 82 centimeters long. So Ninja Titan was certainly bigger than that individual, but I couldn't find the age for either Ninja Titan or that Camarasaurus. So <laughs> oh, Okay, so it could be like maybe one was a juvenile, one was an adult or... Yeah, exactly. So I don't really know. I was trying my best to figure out about how big Ninja Titan is, and I was trying to use the scapula because it's the most complete bone, but I really couldn't get a good answer. I mean, it's over a meter long, so it's a big, it's not a dwarf sauropod like we sometimes see in Patagonia. It was a full-sized sauropod, I would guess, but I can't tell you if it was 50 feet long or 100 feet long or anything in between, really. Mm-hmm. Some Probably somewhere in that ballpark. Part of that is because that femur and fibula are both so fragmentary. They're both about 80 centimeters or two and a half feet long, at least the fragments of them that we have. For scale, a patagotitan femur is over seven feet. It's about three times as big as the femur fragment that we have from Ninja Titan. But again, this is a fragment, so we don't know how big it would have been if we had the full thing. And so that makes it even harder to scale than something like the scapula. So yeah. It was a titanosaur. It was big. Just don't know how big. The reason the authors concluded that it was probably a titanosaur, because obviously it's it could have been lots of different sauropods based on where it was found, since mm-hmm. we see all sorts of stuff around there, is because of a few features. So one of them is the vertebra at the base of the tail is procelous, which means that it's convex at the front and concave at the back. So it just articulates in that fashion. That vertebra is also really pneumatized or hollow. And then there's a feature on the scapula that where the back edge just looks particularly titanosaur-y. <laughs> All right. Those are the main features that they were based on. None of those are like slam dunks for it being a titanosaur. But when you combine them and then put it into a phylogenetic matrix, it comes out as a basal titanosaur. But we're missing 91% of the features that you use to classify an animal and figure out where it fits in the family tree. So we don't have any of the neck, the hips, the skull. Those are all really useful in identifying a group. So it's just a best guess, really, is that it's a titanosaur, but they seem fairly confident in it. Mm -hmm. If it is a titanosaur, that makes Ninja Titan the oldest known titanosaur that we've ever found. And when I say titanosaur, I mean that it's within titanosauria which is what people normally mean. It's not like I'm using it in a weird way or they're using it in a weird way. It's usually what people mean when they say titanosaur. But there is a larger group called titanosauriforms or titanosauriformes, which dates back into the Jurassic. It actually includes brachiosauridae. That's the other major group other than titanosauria. And obviously brachiosaurus itself is about 15 to 20 million years older than Ninja Titan. So if you're talking about titanosauriforms, then... This is not that old. Right. As a true titanosaur, you might say, in titanosauria, it is very old. Which shows that they were around longer than previously thought and kind of shows that overlap more. Yeah, it does. There was an estimate recently that said they thought the earliest titanosaurs might have 
evolved around 135 million years, I think was the number they came up with. And so in this formation, we know it's about 134 to 140 million years. So this could be that one that they're looking for. It probably isn't. It's probably just one of many. And if you include this one, that might push that estimate back farther even. I'm not sure because obviously they just published this one. But yeah, it's solid evidence now that there was stuff in that very early Cretaceous. Usually when we're talking about Titanosaurus, I think 80 to 90% of the ones we talk about are within 100 to 110 million years ago. So this is about 30 million years older than most of the Titanosaurs we talk about, I would say. I should add a caveat about it being the oldest Titanosaur because there are two that are potentially older or very close. The first is Triumphosaurus, which is maybe older. They overlap in their age estimates. That one has a broader estimate, so it could be younger or older depending on where it shakes out. But Triumphosaurus is likely outside of Titanosauria. It was originally described as a Titanosaur, and then later it got reviewed and people are like, nah, it's probably not really a Titanosaur. Could it be a Titanosauriform? I think it was going out like even farther into like Macronaria, if I remember right. It's sort of like pretty far out but that one i think was just vertebrae it was it was more partial than ninja titan for Mm -hmm. sure the other one although this one would probably be the second oldest now is volga titan if volga titan is valid because again it's just known from a couple not great shape vertebrae and volga titan is probably a few to maybe 10 or 15 million years younger than ninja titan depending on where the estimates on the stratigraphy end up settling out. But that would make Volga Titan the oldest known titanosaur in the northern hemisphere. (laughs) Ooh, getting specific now. Yeah, exactly. But since Ninja Titan is now the oldest known titanosaur and it's from the southern hemisphere, the authors point out it might show that titanosaurs first came from the southern hemisphere, or more generally from Gondwana. Is that more generally? That might be more specific. Can't remember exactly how much of Laurasia was in the Southern Hemisphere at that point. I think a little bit of it was. But in any event, there had been some earlier titanosaurs like Volga Titan that were found outside of Gondwana. And so we were sort of up in the air about where these early titanosaurs came from. So this might help settle that debate because we certainly find a ton of diversity of sauropods in Gondwana, especially in Patagonia. So it seems likely that that might be where things kicked off. And in the early Cretaceous, Gondwana had started breaking up, but South America, Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula were still firmly connected. So I think the reason that we're finding so much of this stuff in Patagonia is because that's where the fossils are, not necessarily because that's where the sauropods were. Once we find more dinosaurs in Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, I'm guessing we'll find a bunch of titanosaurs there as well. That would be great. Yeah. I'm so excited about what Africa has in store in terms of paleontology. There's got to be so much good stuff there. Well, you know, there's this weird stuff like Spinosaurus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What other animals were in that ecosystem with Spinosaurus? This one would have predated Spinosaurus by about 40 million years, too. Pretty cool. There's a new sauropod for you. Ninja Titan. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun name, too. It is. It's a good one. And in other news... We've already mentioned Utah Raptor State Park is definitely happening because the governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, signed the bill that created Utah Raptor and Lost Creek State Parks on April 13th, and that approved around $30 million for both parks. We've got a few more details now about Utah Raptor State Park. So it's going to be 15 miles northeast of Moab. I think we knew that already, but they're going to have campgrounds, restrooms, an office, an entrance station, trailheads for hiking and mountain biking. They haven't decided yet the exact size of the park, but it's probably going to be between seven and 8,000 acres. So it's still obviously in very much the planning stages. There's no opening date set yet. But the planning is going to be led by Megan Blackwelder, who's the current manager of Dead Horse State Park, as well as state park officials. So things are getting going. And the main piece of the park is the obviously the Dalton Wells Quarry, where Utah Raptor was found. And it Seems only 10% of that site has been excavated, and you know, they've already found that block of Utah Raptor. There's Gastonia, 18 partial skulls of Moabasaurus, too, so that's a really excellent site. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and what I 
found out more recently is that the park has been in the works since 1995 when the Utah legislature gave Grand County $15,000 for a feasibility study. The answer is it's feasible. Well, that first study, uh, I guess the answer was no because they ended up hiring an architect to draw plans for something that looked like, a, I guess, a tilted Eiffel Tower. It was supposed to resemble a brontosaurus neck, and that would have cost them $15 million to build, so that didn't happen. That's interesting. The The park got canceled because they decided they didn't want to make a really fancy sculpture to go with it. I guess that couldn't find too many details, but yeah, they didn't want to spend $15 million on just the one building versus, I mean, now you've got 30-ish million dollars for two parks. Yeah, I wonder, maybe the $15 million might have included a lot of the park too, and they just decided the whole cost was too much at the time. Could be. We hadn't discovered the awesome Utah Raptor block at that point. Mm -hmm. I think that's clearly what got a lot of the focus on this site. Oh, yeah. Well, this site, it's also, there's a lot of human history in that area too, because near the Dalton Wells Quarry, there used to be a Japanese internment camp during World War II. Not much is there anymore, but the state, the Utah Raptor State Park, is going to be highlighting that history as well as the dinosaurs. So they're going to have some sort of memorial. Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that something so recent we don't have any traces of, but something from like 100 million years ago, we've got stuff still in the ground that we can dig up. Yeah. It's weird how that works out. I'm excited to hear more about the plans. Hopefully it doesn't take them too long to open the park. Yeah, that's interesting because right now it seems like you could probably still go there. Maybe you're not allowed to. I don't know, but it doesn't sound like it's on private land. Yeah, I don't know the details and I don't even know what's there right now. Yeah, I guess if they don't have parking or trails, it would be similar to just wandering off into any other wilderness. Right, and <laughs> maybe you stumble upon the quarry, but maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> Best to wait until it's an official park and things are prepared for visitors. Mm -hmm. In the UK on the Jurassic Coast, they recently, by recently I mean April 13th, had 4,000 tons of debris collapse. Wow. Yeah. Apparently some of the rocks were the size of cars. That's scary. Yeah. Especially considering people like to walk around there looking at fossils. Yes. So there's a lot of warnings right now. Don't go right now. It's unstable. They think this might be the largest cliff collapse in the UK in the last 60 years. And then shortly after the 4,000 tons of debris collapsed, there was a second collapse that was, they said it was around 985 feet or 300 meters across. Holy cow. Yeah, mm -hmm. that is a, a massive collapse. I don't even know what you do. Do you like run into the ocean? How do you, are you just a goner if you're underneath that? I don't know. But well, luckily no one was injured in these collapses. So I'm guessing it happened at a time people weren't around. Yeah, I guess I'm assuming that it was a cliff up against the ocean because I know that's how a lot of the erosion happens, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be right up against the water. It could have been inland a little bit, I guess. Yeah. But again, the Dorset Council is asking people to not go there right now, which might be tempting to look for fossils because after that kind of collapse, there's a lot of new fossils that are probably exposed but it's still, it's unstable. Watch out for safety signs. Keep away from the tops or bases of the cliffs because there could be more collapses in the next few weeks. Oh, geez, yeah. Yeah. And as a reminder, the Jurassic Coast is a World Heritage Site because of its rocks and fossils and landforms. And it's the only World Heritage Site in England. It stretches 95 miles and a lot of fossils have been found there, including of ichthyosaurs. Okay. Yeah, if it's the World Heritage Site one, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right up against the ocean. Mm -hmm. That's probably why it collapsed. But that is crazy. Mm -hmm. 300 meters of rock. What did you say? How many thousands of tons? 4,000 tons? Yeah. When it's stable again, think of the new fossils that you might be able to find. That's true. I was just, I was also thinking about that weight in terms of dinosaurs. That's like 100 sauropods worth of, <laughs> worth of mass <laughs> falling down at once. That's cool. I mean, there's probably some dinosaurs in there, probably a lot more marine stuff. Mm -hmm. But occasionally there's always a dinosaur that gets washed out to sea and Maybe gets something, fossilized. something with gut contents. Yeah, there you go. Like another ankylosaur. Mm. Now, also in the UK, we've got an update on the Megalosaurus at Crystal Palace dinosaurs. So thank you to our listeners who shared with us the update. 
uh, Megosaurus, also known as Meg, and they've been fixing Meg's jaw. So what they did was they scanned the broken piece of the jaw. They did a 3D scan, and then they 3D printed a replacement with plastic. And it's a temporary replacement while the team figures out how best to conserve the entire sculpture. But it's basically giving Meg a pretty smile, ready for the summer and the summer visitors. Yeah, it was. it's cool because the plastic they printed it in is a similar color to the original that it was painted. So it's like a light gray. Mm-hmm. But the Megalosaurus isn't as well preserved, isn't repainted like I think the Iguanodon is. So it's like a really nice looking jaw now on like a not so good of shape rest of the body. Right. What's crazy too is that this temporary replacement weighs about 12 kilograms compared to the original piece that weighed 120 kilograms. Yeah. I was actually surprised it weighed 12 kilograms because that's like almost 30 pounds mm-hmm. of plastic. It's a big jaw. It, it is big, but I'm using, because with our 3D printer, it usually prints kind of hollow mm-hmm. so that it's really lightweight and uses as little material as possible. But they used really fancy materials with this jaw. I can't remember the name of the plastic that they use because it's something I've never been able to 3D print in. And then, yeah, the teeth are even fancier. Oh, yeah. It's nylon teeth that they slotted in. Yeah. Yeah, they look really slick. And then since they're separate pieces too, I guess they probably didn't even have to paint them. They probably just printed them in white nylon and stuck them in there. I think so. Yeah, it looks really cool. And I'm sure it's, even though it's plastic and it's not completely impervious to rain and all that kind of stuff, it'll probably last longer without being painted than the concrete and iron through the middle of it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm It'd be really interesting to see how they decide to conserve the rest of the Megalosaurus. Yeah. Well, and they said it was a temporary replacement. So are they going to try to recreate it in the original concrete later? I I don't know. I couldn't tell from the update post. It, it probably just depends on what kind of funding they get and things. Yeah. It looks like they put a lot of effort into getting it as correct as possible, mm-hmm. just in case it's a while before it gets changed into mm-hmm. something more original or if worst case scenario you have you get stuck with it forever yes <laughs> but those those sculptures are getting old now what are they they're from the 1850s so we're coming up on like 170 years now something like that yeah the world's oldest dinosaur sculptures and they were scientifically accurate for the time yeah basically some of the first ever paleo art too mm-hmm. For the public, at least. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun place to visit. It's very cool. Highly recommend if you're ever in the southern side of London. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. (laughs) Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio 
and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So over in the U.S., in Richmond, Virginia, the new headquarters for this company called Great Minds got a Stan the T-Rex replica, and maybe some of you might have seen them. They had a live stream of assembling Stan the T-Rex the other day. It was led by Pete Larson, the assembly, and they had what they called a dino cam <laughs> to watch. So Stan weighs, the replica weighs about 1,100 pounds, and it's 40 feet long. This stand is one of 10 stands in the U.S. and the only one in Virginia, which I was a little surprised to hear there's only 10 stands in the U.S. I thought there might have been more. I'm guessing that must be like full. full. Yeah. Exactly. Because we've seen a lot of stand skulls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I can recognize a stand skull now. Yeah. So I, I'm a little surprised, too, that there's only 10 full ones. It is the most popular replica of the T-Rex. Mm-hmm. It's also about twice as heavy as the Trix 3D printed replica that oh. you talked about last week, because that was like 600 pounds. Right. This is almost 1,200 pounds. 3D prints. Wow. See, that's the thing. See, like that that whole dot, you can get an entire T-Rex for 600 pounds. Mm-hmm. So that jaw being 20 something pounds seems kind of heavy. <laughs> but I guess it was big. They made those heads on those dinosaurs really big. Yes. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> So back to Stan the Replica, George Munson, a 12-year-old who had met Pete Larson three years ago when he and his family visited the Black Hills Institute, got to help by attaching Stan's skull at the end. That would have been fun. Yeah. Uh, Great Minds, it's this company that supports teachers with curriculum materials, and they do a lot of subjects, including science. And this new headquarters, they're going to have schools be able to come in and tour and see Stan starting in the fall. The original stand we've talked about before was part of a feud between Pete Larson and his brother Neil, and that skeleton, the original one, sold last October for about $32 million. I looked, I tried looking it up. I couldn't find any other details about oh. other than the fact that it was sold for so much so money. So it seems to have disappeared into the private sector. At least for now. It's only been a few months, so who knows? Hopefully it ends up in a museum somewhere. Yeah. But Stan was originally found in 1987. It took 30,000 hours to excavate, and Stan's about 68% complete and has 205 bones, and the skull has 61 bones. There's maybe 61 pieces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the biggest teeth of Stan's are 12 inches long, and that includes the root. That is a big tooth, 12 inches. Mm-hmm. Imagine slotting that in. <laughs> If it was made out of nylon. <laughs> I think they come pre-fused in, yeah. probably, in the replica. Probably. <laughs> I wasn't able to, unfortunately, see most of that live stream. but Yeah, that, I'm sure that was going on for a while. Yes. On other exhibit news, there's a new traveling Pokemon fossil exhibit in Japan. That's, huh. Yeah, it was made by Pokemon and the National Museum of Nature and Science in Japan. That's interesting. That reminds me of Gabe when he was doing some Pokemon-themed mm-hmm. dinosaur outreach. And, well, he does a lot of cosplay for science. And Pokemon definitely fits into there. Mm-hmm. And not just him, but there's a whole group of people doing it. It's just awesome. Yeah, so with this exhibit, you can compare Pokemon characters and real prehistoric animals. Like, you look at the skeletons side by side. And you learn about the animals that inspired some of the Pokemon characters. Hmm. So I guess there's like the uh, some sort of pterosaur that inspired the Aerodactyl, I think was its name. You know Pokemon a lot better than me. Yeah. Oh, there's Tyranitar, I yeah. think is the name of the Tyrannosaur-ish one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's definitely a bunch. And it's cool. It's a traveling exhibit, so it's going all over Japan. They're starting with Mikasa City Museum in Hokkaido. It's going to be there from July to September of this year. Then moving on to Simani Prefectural Sanpei Nature Museum later in the fall, and then the National Science Museum in Tokyo next spring, and Toyohashi Museum of Natural History next summer. And then they've already said it'll be going more places after that. They just haven't booked. 
That is cool. That is a very Japanese, that is the Japanesiest <laughs> exhibit I could imagine, a Pokemon-themed dinosaur museum. That's cool. Or dinosaur exhibit. Yeah. That's a fun idea. Mm -hmm. They have those really cool Pokemon stores in Japan, too, where it's just like so much Pokemon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe after it's done traveling around Japan, it'll go to other countries. Maybe. I could see it staying in Japan, though. That's true. It could just keep going to the same museums. Yeah, or end up in a Pokemon store mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it sounds cool. In Romania, Dino Park has a new sculpture, an 11-meter-tall Diplodocus. And they say it's the, quote, tallest dinosaur in southeastern Europe. Uh, <laughs> the sculpture that is, that reminds me of some papers, you know. I like how it has to be southeastern Europe. Yes. Not just eastern Europe, not just southern Europe, but southeastern Europe. Yes. Then it's the tallest. I think Dino Park also says it's like the biggest dinosaur park in southeastern Europe or something. <laughs> oh, no, the largest dinosaur park in southeastern Europe. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so this Diplodocus, it's in the rearing position. So looks extra tall. Sort of like the Barasaurus in the AM&H. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about Dino Park before. They've got more than 100 life-size, scientifically accurate dinosaurs. They also have this interactive volcano in an area. It sounds like you experience three types of earthquakes. I don't know exactly how you know which type. But oh one's from a volcanic eruption. One's from a herd of seismosaurus running. And then one's from tectonic plates. But I wonder if they'd actually feel different to you. I think so. I mean... It's earthquakes have those different elements of how much side to side versus up down and sort of the pattern of that. Mm -hmm. Is it like a swirling situation or is it just rocking back and forth like crazy? I guess. But seismosaurus running, I wonder what paleontologists think about that because a lot of times with these larger dinosaurs running is not necessarily something their bones could handle. Oh, I see. I didn't have time to finish it for this week, but there was a paper on T-Rex mm -hmm. and how it probably couldn't run because would be too much stress for the bones potentially oh, interesting even if it needed to yeah i'm not i'm not sure i need to write, read the paper to right. be sure on what they're saying but i i know for some of the heavier dinosaurs especially when you're weighing like 10 plus tons mm -hmm. putting all your weight on one limb especially going airborne and then sort of landing on it is a risky endeavor maybe they jumped oh but you're still landing on it yeah i guess elephants i think when they sort of run it's kind of like power past. walking exactly and that's sort of what birds do right they mm -hmm. have that easy transition from like slow walk to fast walk to super fast walk mm -hmm. <laughs> to the point where it's like a little kid chasing a bird and they're just like power walking away crazy fast <laughs> <laughs> so maybe seismosaurus doing that might cause a little earthquake i guess it's funny to think of seismosaurus power walking yeah like a plover mm-hmm <laughs> <laughs> In other statue news, there's a few of these. So Doraville, Georgia has a new T-Rex statue at English Oak Park, and it's nine feet tall. It's made of steel, and it's really colorful. It's red, pink, orange, yellow, and then its feet, or at least the toes, are neon green. It was painted by a local artist, Sean Vincelet, and local residents donated to fund it, and now they're having a vote to name their dinosaur. And some of the options were pretty fun. They included Dora, Mozilla, Parks and Rex, and Chomp. Parks and Rex. Yeah. That's my favorite. <laughs> like Parks and Rex. I didn't even catch that until you pointed it out. Yeah. But it's spelled P-A-R-K-S-O-N. Right. Probably because it's in a park. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so they're going to have a dedication and reveal the name during a barbecue on June 4th to celebrate that park. Oh, sorry. Not the park. The city. Yeah. Doraville's 150th anniversary. Nice. Wait, is that the sesquicentennial? I'm... Not good with those types of words. I just double checked. It is the sesquicentennial. That's the 150th anniversary. Well done. Impressive. I remember because I was in Wisconsin during Wisconsin's sesquicentennial. Oh. Which was like in the 1990s, in the last century. I and mean, I know bicentennial, centennial, the rounder number, I guess 150 is also a round number. I'm surprised you don't remember California's sesquicentennial because that would have been in 2000. Hmm. You didn't do anything at school? No. Huh. I think we were busy talking about the new millennium. Or if we did something, I don't remember. I guess that, that seems likely to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
let's say my memory is not that bad and we just didn't do anything. Okay. <laughs> In Kansas, Erie Dinosaur Park got its final three dinosaur sculptures. Because like I said, there's multiple dinosaur sculpture news this week. There's 12 sculptures in the park. They were built by Robert Doris after he retired from the Navy. And he was inspired by the dinosaurs at the Smithsonian. So he built these sculptures using salvaged car parts. And then he had the dinosaurs on display in his yard for many years. And then he passed away. And in 2007, his family donated them to Erie, Kansas to help with tourism. As you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty nice. So the dinosaurs are T-Rex, there's a potosaurus, or maybe it's brontosaurus. It's a little hard for me to tell. Uh, Triceratops, stegosaurus. There's an ankylosaur and a baby. And then in non-dinosaurs, there's a mastodon, what I think is a tiktaalik. Oh, cool. Yeah. A dimetrodon, a turtle, and then others. Um, but I only saw parts of them in the picture, so I couldn't tell exactly what they were. I'm impressed that you could tell all these details from them being made from basically salvaged metal. We did a really good job in getting the shapes right. I mean, I'm not completely sure about Tiktaalik. It's just when I saw the picture, I thought that looks a lot like a Tiktaalik. But I also am much more familiar with how dinosaurs look. So Yeah. So they're not like car looking in any way. It's just like that happened to be the source for the sheet metal. And then it looks completely different than any sort of car. Yeah, it doesn't look like cars. It looks like dinosaur skeletons. Cool. Or I guess, prehistoric animal skeletons. So the park is free to visit. It's only open every second Saturday and third Sunday of the month, but you can also schedule appointments. <laughs> schedule an appointment to go to a park? Yeah. I guess they want to make sure that the sculptures are intact. Oh, I see. That's my guess anyway. Moving on to the next dinosaur sculpture. This one's in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Artisan Forge Studios has a, they're calling a Scrapasaur metal dinosaur collection that's opening in May. And that was made by artist Dave Lewis. There's going to be 14 dinosaurs, including an 18-foot-tall T-Rex. Do you know what makes them Scrapasaurus? No. Okay. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say a joke there. <laughs> no, I don't. I was genuinely curious why they're called Scrapasaurus. Could be Scrapasaur. Oh, Scrapasaur. I might have just pronounced it wrong. Yeah, Scrapasaur Metal Dinosaur Collection. Just like the last ones. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So the dinosaurs are going to be outside, so they're easy for people to see. And then depending on how it works out with how much space they have, they might have some of the dinosaurs spread out around town. Cool. And then next in Los Angeles, California, specifically the neighborhood Eagle Rock, one of the residents, Brenda Reeves, wrote about the toy dinosaurs in her garden that got her through this pandemic. So I guess it started a few weeks into the pandemic. She made this toy dinosaur diorama in her front yard in a cardboard box, and it's meant to look like a mini Jurassic Park. And kids and other people who pass by could play with it and kind of rearrange all the dinosaurs and everything. And then she just restages it in the mornings. It's kind of a reset. She plans to keep it around even post-pandemic so that people can still play with it when they pass by. Cool. Yeah, I thought that was a fun idea. Nice way to interact with people in a safe way. And then last, I'm really excited about this news. Jurassic World, the exhibition's going on tour in North America, finally. Ooh. Or maybe it was in North America before, but it was just in a city we couldn't get to at it the was. time. It was in Philadelphia, and I want to say Chicago. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. Okay, well, it's back in North America. It's starting in Dallas, Texas on June 18th, but it looks like I looked at the tickets already. It looks like there's only tickets available in Dallas, Texas so, for now, so I don't know where else it's going. I hope somewhere near us that we can go to. Yeah, California would be nice. Yeah. Anywhere in California, we'll make it. <laughs> Even if we have to drive for 15 hours straight. Oh, goodness. <laughs> anyway, they said it's a 20,000 square foot experience. It includes Hammond's Lab. You see baby dinosaurs hatching. And then you've got Indominus Rex, the raptors in the raptor paddock. A gyrosphere, but Garrett, I don't think you can climb into it. I think you just They never let it. you in the gyrospheres. Yeah. It's very disappointing. And then, of course, you see Velociraptor, Brachiosaurus, T-Rex, and you interact with Bumpy. So they've updated it since the last tour. Nice. I think I might have seen a picture of that Bumpy, mm -hmm. the Bumpy puppet. Bumpy's the best. <laughs> Thought you'd like that. By far the best part of Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous is Bumpy. No question. No <laughs> question. 
What else even is there? There's some kids. There's other dinosaurs. But, yeah, but yeah. they're not friendly. I see. Yeah, Bumpy is pretty cute. And Bumpy, covered in bumps. Yeah. And helpful to the kids. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Line Coupal, which was a request from Thieving Raptor Lorenzo via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Line Coupal was a Diplodocine sauropod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now New Ken province in Argentina in the Bajada, Colorado formation. Oh, it was in there too. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about the Diplodocid. I didn't name this one when I mentioned that there was a Diplodocid because I didn't want to figure out how to say the name when I was researching it. Oh, well, <laughs> you're welcome. Filling you. you in. <laughs> so like all Diplodocids, it had a long neck and a whip-like tail and hind limbs that were longer than the forelimbs. And it was herbivorous. Lankupal is estimated to be about 30 feet or 9 meters long. That's really short. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, 30 feet is shorter than probably like Diplodocus's tail. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone the whole animal. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Because when I think 30 feet, I think, oh, that's long. But yeah, compared to other sauropods. The weight of Lankupal is unknown. But the bones were delicate and light, and most of its body was neck and tail, so it probably wasn't that heavy. And it's possible that it weighed about the same as an elephant, a modern elephant. Yeah, those length estimates are misleading compared to something like an elephant, mm -hmm. where it's a lot more mass in a more compact space. Yeah. And some of the news articles about it, it the dinosaur was referred to as the littlest giant, because it's possibly the smallest diplodocid. Mm. So there you go. The shape of its vertebrae was distinct from other diplodocid vertebrae, and it had these uh, bony projections off each side of the vertebrae, also known as transverse processes. And some of the neural spines were bifurcated, and it had a broad muscular tail, which was probably strong, and it probably had a lot of control over its tail. The type and only species is Lankupal laticata. The fossils were found between 2010 and 2012, they were damaged by erosion, and there wasn't much to see, but the team that found them didn't find any other fossils when they were excavating, so they dug out the Lankupal vertebrae, and then they saw it was a new dinosaur. <laughs> and these fossils, they were disarticulated, and they were found mixed up with Dicreosaur fossils. Yeah, it could be a Bahatosaurus. It could be. So Lankupal was named and described in 2014 by Pablo Gaina and others. This seems to be his area since he's the one who named Ninja Titan. The genus name means vanishing family in Mapudungan, and it refers to the dinosaur being the youngest known species of Diplodocidae. So you got the youngest known Diplodocid and the oldest known Titanosaur in the same formation. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty crazy. The name Lankupal also refers to the fact that Diplodocids seem to die out during the early Cretaceous. And the species name, Laticata, means wide tail because of its broad caudal vertebrae. Lankupal is the second confirmed diplodocid from Gondwana. It's the only known diplodocid from South America and then the youngest and only one known from the Cretaceous so far. Sebastian Apestagia. El Ninja. Yes, aka El Ninja, was one of the authors for Lankupal and said in a Routers article, quote, a diplodocid in South America is as strange as finding a T-Rex in Patagonia. But it turns out that whole Bajada, Colorado area is just a very strange area with yeah. all sorts of sauropods together. That's pretty cool. So until Lankupal, scientists thought that Diplodocids went extinct by the end of the Jurassic. And Diplodocids had only been found in North America, Europe, and Africa. So this late arrival to South America was probably because Diplodocids were in Africa since the early to middle Jurassic. That's what the thinking is. It's possible that their sister group Ribachisauridae ecologically replaced Diplodocids because the group rose in the early, late Cretaceous. The holotype of Lankupal is a front tail vertebra. There's other fossils too, the paratypes. They include more front tail vertebrae, a hind tail vertebra, a front dorsal vertebra, and two vertebrae from the middle of the tail. It's possibly that more fossils have been found, but they haven't been officially referred. At first, Lankupal was thought to be a sister taxon to Torniaria, which is a diplodocid that lived in the late Jurassic in what is now Tanzania. 
then in 2015, a phylogenetic analysis of diplodocids found Lyncopol to be a sister taxon to Galeamopus. And they said that Lyncopol, however, was still a valid taxon because it's the only one found in South America and the only one that lived in the Cretaceous. Lyncopol lived in a semi-arid environment. See, I told you that comes up a lot, Garrett. <laughs> South of a large desert. And they lived near braided rivers. And other animals that lived at the same time and place included tetanurans, possible dinonicosaurians, and possible abelosauroids, and then, of course, all those sauropods. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Now for our fun fact, buckle up. It's going to be a long one. So this is about that paper that found that there were probably two and a half billion T-Rex that lived. I didn't know there was a paper that said that. That's a lot of T-Rex. That is a lot of T-Rex. So that's the main fun fact, but I will get into the details of this paper. It was Charles Marshall and others that wrote it, and it was in science, and it was called Absolute Abundance and Preservation Rate of Tyrannosaurus Rex. Wow, that is a hard thing to determine. Yes, it's very tricky to estimate the number of individuals in an extinct species. <laughs> so they looked at a lot of factors. They used the relationship between population density and then body mass among living species and what scientists know about T-Rex so far to calculate all the variables they needed for the population density and preservation rates for adult T-Rex. And the summary, I'll go into the summary before I get into the details, is that they estimated about 20,000 adult T-Rex lived at any one time. So 20,000 adult T-Rex on Earth at a moment. Yes. Multiplied by a whole bunch of years. By about two and a half million years or 127,000 generations. <laughs> That's a lot of generations. Yes. So that got them to two and a half billion T-Rex. And they also looked at a fossil recovery rate of one per 80 million individuals. Or if you go to areas with a lot of fossils, one per 16,000 individuals. That is a huge range. One per 16,000 to one per 80 million. Yes. It's like four orders of magnitude. Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot of uncertainties in these values and the estimates and even some of the assumptions that they made. Fossilization rates are unknown, so you can't use the number of fossils found to calculate variables. It does help to look at living species. They used Monte Carlo simulations, which predicts the probability by substituting a range of values. But the author said, quote, these simulations do not accommodate uncertainties that might stem from the choices made in the design of our approach. So they know that there's some variability here. What they started with was they used DeMuth's law from John DeMuth of UC Santa Barbara to estimate T-Rex population density. And this law is used for living animals. But population density is also based on an animal's body mass, I guess, because depending how big you are, yeah, how many individuals can live There's together. There's a lot more ants in a given space than there are lions. Yes. It's probably a little bit skewed because most of the big animals around today are mammals, but I guess you do what you can. Well, so some of the estimates were how were T-Rex populations affected by their metabolism and ecological differences. They assumed that T-Rex metabolisms or energy needs were a around midway between carnivorous mammals like lions and tigers and large varanid lizards like Komodo dragons. There's a lot of variability depending on ecological differences. So that can lead to a lot of variability in animal population densities with similar niches and behaviors even. 
And for that reason, that's why they didn't include any juvenile T-Rex. There's not enough fossils in the juvenile T-Rex. They filled a different niche. They ate different things because they couldn't crush bone yet and they were faster. They just lived differently from the adults. That's really interesting because we know a lot of T-Rex died as teenagers from the fossil record. So if they're saying there were 20,000 adult T-Rex, and that means that there were, over that period of time, there were two and a half million T-Rexes that basically reached adulthood. But we know a lot of them died before they reached adulthood. That's actually a lot more T-Rex individuals, more yes. than several billion, maybe 10 Which billion or something. Even just thinking two and a half billion. Anyway, that's it's so many. <laughs> yes. Although it makes sense when you think how long they lived and how successful they were. It makes sense why there were only 20,000. I thought 20,000 was kind of low, but if you're not including the juvenile ones, you know, that's tens of thousands more. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you might have approaching 100,000 of all ages if you included them all. Yep. So that's when they're looking at the population density. And then in terms of body mass, they computed an average body mass of adult T-Rex. They had a mean of 5,200 kilograms, and that was based on the team looking at T-Rex growth curves and how fast they grew and things like that. So based on the body mass and the population density estimates, the median estimate is that there was 3,800 adult T-Rex in an area the size of California, or two adult T-Rex in an area the size of Washington, D.C. Well, that's quite a range that they had. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they picked out these specific examples in the paper. Because Washington, D.C. isn't that small. Yeah. And there's only two T-Rex in an area that size, based on their estimate. Right. Two adults, anyway. Oh, good point. Yeah. So then the team looked at the estimated geographic area that T-Rex lived in, and they estimated the minimum amount of space that, you know, this population of T-Rex would live in, based on the uh, it was a convex hull around fossil localities with adult T-Rex specimens, so that area around the locality. And that was, they were basing it on the 32 T-Rex specimens that Thomas Carr analyzed. It sounds like they relied quite a bit on his analysis because you're talking about growth curves, which was in his paper too, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Maybe you got to start somewhere, and that's a very comprehensive paper. It is, yeah. And then the estimates for the maximum amount of space uh, that these T-Rex populations lived in was based on the size of the inferred ecological niche for tyrannosaurs in the late Maastrichtian, which is based on, they said, Chirenza and others' models. And they estimated that the total geographic area, I guess between the minimum and maximum then, was 2.3 million square kilometers. They were saying it's a much bigger area than where we found T-Rex bones so far. Yes, Basically guessing at like where the barriers would be and about how far north and south they might end up. Mm -hmm. Interesting. They took these numbers, the estimated population density number and the estimated geographic area number, and they multiplied it and found an average of 20,000 adult T-Rex as their standing population size. That's how they came up with the 20,000 number. But if you take, you know, the lowest numbers and the highest numbers, those numbers actually range between 1,300 to 328,000 T-Rex individuals at any one time. Those are the numbers that fall within their 95% confidence range, 95% you know, chance where the real number lies, which is a huge range. But they said that the lower number, the 1,300 number, seems too low for T-Rex to have lasted for at least a million years. Yes, that's not the most sustainable population. Like maybe it would go down to that at some points, but for it to be there consistently mm -hmm. for millions of years, you just need like one big problem with a population, like one disease and the whole species gets wiped out. Yeah. So, yeah, I think they're right about that. So once they had this standing population size estimate of 20,000, they needed to multiply that with the total number of generations of T-Rex to find the total number of T-Rex that lived. And what they did was they estimated the number of generations by dividing the estimated length that a T-Rex existed, the temporal range, by the age a T-Rex lived to be, the generation time. As you can imagine, the temporal range is uncertain, but based on T-Rex fossils found, they estimated T-Rex lasted between 1.2 to 3.6 million years. So then you've got a mean of 2.4 million years. And then for the generation time, they looked at when T-Rex became mature, which was around 14 to 17 years old, so a medium of 15 and a half years, 
and that's based on that T-Rex growth curve. And then they estimated the max age to be 28, and that's based on Sue the T-Rex and the assumption that enough specimens have been found that in the future, significantly older individuals won't be found. But the authors did say this could change. And that was interesting because I think when we talked about Trix the T-Rex the other week, Trix is estimated to be about 30 years old. Yeah, there's a couple that are estimated to be about 30. But those upper estimates always have to assume that that inner cavity in the bone had a certain number of lags in it and things. So it's, it gets squishy yeah. at those that 10% or so in the upper end of the age. Yeah. So they said, okay, 28 was the, the oldest age. And so using these numbers, they computed the average generation time to be 19 years. The range was actually really close in that 95% confidence range. It was between 17.8 to 20.1 years. Interesting. Yeah, I've wondered about that, how you guess at the generation time when you know how long something lives and when it becomes sexually mature. Mm -hmm. So that's, I might have to use that in my random guesswork in the future. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so using these numbers, the estimates, that's how they came to 127,000 generations of Mm -hmm. T-Rex. If you go within that 95% confidence range, that interval, it can go as low as 66,000 to 188,000 generations. But using all these median numbers, that's how the authors came to a 2.5 billion total T-Rex. Though if you change the numbers a little bit, that could be as low as 140 million T-Rex and as high as 42 billion T-Rex. Yeah. So I guess they did include younger individuals because they're basing it on when they mate and then they're laying eggs, whether or not they all make it to adulthood in a weird way, kind of. Yeah. What they said in the supplementary material is, you know, 32 T-Rex individuals have been found and are in public repositories. So, you know, what Thomas Carr documented Around 100 individuals have been found if you include museums and private collections, but in some cases that only includes teeth. Yeah, I think it's more like 50-ish if you're talking about things that have like a a decent amount of find to them. Yeah, but that led the authors to say, you know, we've only found one in 80 million T-Rex. Though if you look at areas where T-Rex fossils are common, like the Hell Creek Formation, then it can be maybe we found one in 16,000 T-Rex. Gotcha. That's where they got that. Yeah. One in 16,000 to one in 80 million. Just that particular region from that time period. Interesting. So, you know, obviously it's really hard to say, yes, there were two and a half billion T-Rex because there's so many uncertainties in these estimated population densities and all these other variables to plug in. And the team said, yes, these estimates could change in the future as we learn more, especially if scientists can figure out more about T-Rex population density. But the goal of their paper was to provide a good framework, like what you were saying, Gary. You know, you can use what they used for your estimates in the future. Yeah. And it can help determine the rarity of a species or how short-lived a species was or how geographically restricted a species was. And they've made this framework available as computer code. Cool. Yeah, I think I was trying to find if I had... I I thought I did a fun fact once trying to estimate how many dinosaurs were alive, but I might have just given up because there are so many crazy things that can vary by orders of magnitude that you end up with these ridiculous things like this where it's like it could be as low as 100 million or as much as 100 billion. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what's the point? <laughs> Such a broad range. <laughs> it's a big range. range, yeah. So, yeah, their their answer is basically we're 95% sure that there were between 140 million and 42 billion T-Rex mm-hmm. total on Earth throughout Earth's history, basically. Right. But based on the median of all the variables they plugged in, two and a half billion. Yeah. There's a lot of, those are some big error bars on that two and a half billion. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool, though. I I really like the thought experiment of trying to figure out how many T-Rex there were. And then you wonder, too, like, how many sauropods were there? relative to the T-Rex. Mm-hmm. We always just assume, because you were talking about too, based on the size of the animal, the bigger the thing was, the less of them there were. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always happen. There's lots of weird stuff that happens in nature. Right. I think one of the examples was even with carnivorous mammals, like the number of hyenas that live together versus the number of 
lions or something, mm. you know, and they're not they're not that dissimilar. Yeah, even though their body mass is really different. Mm -hmm. And then you get things like snow leopards where it's just like one and they're super rare because they're such a niche animal. And then you have something on the other end of the spectrum like horses where they're in these huge groups in nature, even though they're way bigger. That probably also has to do with whether they're carnivores or herbivores, I guess, too, though. Mm -hmm. You got dolphins. I guess we're talking about terrestrial stuff. It's fun to think about. Just going back, actually, I was thinking in phys.org, they gave an example. It wasn't hyenas and lions. It was hyenas and jaguars that are about the same size. But hyenas live in much more dense populations, 50 times more dense than jaguars in their habitats. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then you add to that the preservation bias because jaguars might be in an environment that preserves less often than a hyena because mm -hmm. they're in like rainforest type stuff, whereas hyenas might be near rivers or something. And then you're really going to blow that proportion out of the water in terms of what gets preserved and what your estimates are going to be like on how many individuals there were. Yes. So lots of cool things to think about. Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And you can also join our community patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time.